Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the seventh installment in our M. Night Shyamalan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Lady in the Water. And I know it's been a while since we have done the M. Night Shyamalan reviews. Our last review was of The Village. If you have yet to hear those reviews of those previous six films, then go ahead and listen to those reviews before you listen to this one. Uh, That link will be in the description below. It'll be very easy for you to find and get to those reviews and listen to all of them. And the reason I say that is not because any of these films are a sequel, but because Our thoughts, and I would even say the general public's thoughts, over Shyamalan's films have changed over time. So you want to see how the progression of his films goes along with the progression of our thoughts of his films. And as for Lady in the Water, you and I are new to this one, correct? Yeah, I. the only thing that I really know about this movie is I think there was a video that Chris Duckman did on his channel a few years ago. So aside from that, I really didn't know really much about this movie going into it outside of what little I watched of that video that Chris Duckman did. And I did not see it. It came out when I was 11 years old. My only recollection of Lady in the Water, which I've carried with me this whole time, was the trailers that I saw in theaters or even on trailers on television. And I remember the trailers scaring me when I was 11 years old because, and I did go back and rewatch the trailer just to see if there was any justification for it. It wasn't as dark as I remembered it being, but nevertheless, this film, the trailer is awful. I think it is really long. It basically shows the whole movie, even the end of the movie, it gives away almost every kind of surprise you could think of. I all I remember, I remember shutting my eyes though. Whenever I knew I'm like, oh my gosh, this one, this trailer scared me and the unborn scared me, uh, which I haven't seen that movie. Probably won't. Anyways, I think the marketing is fairly poor for the trailer and probably for this movie in general, because once again, they were trying to do what they did with the village and make this into a horror film. So they really were pushing this as a weird dark horror film especially in the trailer and they even use this scary trailer man voice that you would hear Uh, with like a rob zombie halloween type movie so i don't think it accurately represents it and that's why i was scared of this movie when i was 11 right well that actually is part of some of the background to this to this movie because originally lady in the water was going to be under disney once again on touchstone like their last few uh, M. Night movies were. However, this time, uh, when he got the script to a Disney chairman, um, they didn't really know what to make of it. They, I don't know if they necessarily didn't like it. It was the fact that they were just confused by it. Um, although some reports have said that they also just didn't like it. Well, when this got back to M. Night Shyamalan, he was not very happy about that and had said something to the effect of Disney does not value individualism and then pulled out 
of Disney and moved to Warner Bros. Unfortunately, this move also came with the impact of you don't have Disney's advertising. Uh, you have Warner Bros.'s advertising, which is, as one could assume, not as, I guess, appealing to the, the masses as Disney is, which I'm sure really helped a lot when it comes to, you know, advertising your movie. Yeah, I could see Disney definitely portraying this in the trailers more accurately as a kind of modern day realistic fairy tale with lots of imagination and vision behind it. Disney yeah. loves those kind of movies. They put they've put them out frequently over the years. So this seems to be somewhat in their wheelhouse, I guess, as far as fantasy goes, because that's Disney's that's pretty much their primary thing is fantasy and oh yeah i'm a little surprised they they did pass on this and of course it wasn't going to be directly disney like you said it was going to be under their uh, subsidiary touchstone pictures but nevertheless right. i i don't know i'm i'm intrigued by that aspect of it so that probably did hurt the marketing oh yeah and it's kind of funny too because of at least the last three and i would even say at least up until this point in his filmography, this is probably the most Disney-like movie that he's uh, come up with. Oh, uh, it's very fantasy-driven, much like a lot of Disney, much like a lot of the Disney Renaissance movies and kind of actually just Disney animation in general. It's very fantasy-driven. So it is interesting that um, he decided to pull out of Disney when I feel like not only would the marketing really help uh, with because Disney is just Disney, but also this is just very much a Disney-style kind of movie. So, once again, uh, keeping in advertising, which we kind of have already stemmed being kind of the cause for him to move from Disney to uh, to Warner Bros. And then, like you said, the trailer was kind of misleading. The box office also kind of returns this. Um, we have a budget of $70 million, which is, I mean, I was not expecting it to be that high because we're really only in one location this whole time. We're in this apartment complex. Come to find out, the reason why the budget is so high is because the apartment complex and the pool were built specifically for this movie. So this is a new structure, and I'm sure that didn't help with any kind of cost. However, when it comes to returns in the box office, uh, once again, budget of $70 million, Opening weekend, $18 million. Oh, yeah. It didn't do well financially whatsoever, and... I guess the other thing I should have mentioned real quick is M. Night Shyamalan specifically made this film originally out of a bed bedtime story he created right. for his right. children. I was watching the special features and he was saying this began as a bedtime story and it just kept evolving over the nights I was telling it and I kept returning to it. And his kids said, why don't you make this into a movie, which I found to be incredibly ironic that he's like, this was a bedtime story for children, whereas... Me as an 11 year old who probably would have been around that age to be intrigued by a bedtime story such as this, it did not appeal to me whatsoever. And I think that was the problem is who does this movie appeal to? M. Night Shyamalan films are usually geared toward adults because of heavier subject matters. But it right. seems to be this one is definitely kind of going for almost a family all ages thing where, where somebody can learn something from it. But that being said, yeah, I did look at the numbers for this film and it opened at number three. 
at the box office, mm-hmm. which is not a good sign. But once again, he was going up against Disney's Juggernaut series, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. The much more family-friendly film, Monster House, was number two. Then it was Lady in the mm-hmm. Water. Then it was Yumi and Dupree and Little Man. So just a weird time. Um, do you have the... I didn't look up the actual release date. When did this film come out? Ooh, actually, I have it up right here. It came out... In July, end of July, uh, July 21st, 2006. But yeah, you're right. It did go up against uh, Pirates 2, which had already been in for a couple of weeks at that point, which is still hitting number one, which is no surprise. Um, but after, yeah, and it's so it opened number three in its first week and dropped to number six in its second in its second week. Um, and then overall, domestically, 42.3 million foreign market as 30.5 million with a worldwide total of 72.8 million that's just barely above its budget yeah I, domestically i would say it was a bomb here whereas worldwide technically they made their money back but they made a two million dollar profit this is bad news for Shyamalan. and as far as all of his films oh, go yeah. um this grossed way way less than the village did and of all 12 films so far Adjusting for inflation, this is his second lowest grossing film, just right above Wide Awake. Right. And I don't have the marketing numbers here, how much they spend on marketing. Um, I don't know if that's factored in the budget. Usually it isn't. But this is still considered a bomb. The, we, Even though they made, technically made back their budget and then a little bit, about $2.8 that's not enough. That Usually you want at least double your budget. Hopefully you get more than that. But yeah. M. Night Shyamalan, who's at this point been a pretty big name in just movies in general, mostly because of The Sixth Sense, and you have Unbreakable, you got Signs, the big trifecta. And then last year, we had The Village, which is kind of an odd film, but still did pretty well in the box office. Uh, he's still a pretty big name, and then all of a sudden, Lady in the Water comes out, and it's pretty big bomb. That's weird that M. Night Shyamalan, you know, once again, has had his name kind of all over the place and has been doing really well in terms of public uh, perception, doesn't do very well in this what is this uh technically in since signs i think this is his fifth movie yeah fifth movie yeah if you start with the sixth sense well i think one of the other problems is why in the world was this released mid-july this isn't a summer movie whatsoever uh summer movies really need to be big and appeal to everyone this one should have been released probably in the fall or early winter i would say i think this would probably Mm -hmm. better be suited as more of a november ish type film definitely not in mid-july i think that also that that's due to its box office numbers really be being taken away oh yeah no i agree with you i think it would have done much better if it was released, yeah, in the later, later half of the season. I want to say that they probably did this partially because I think the other movies he's done were also released in the summer, which, once again, does help a lot with box office returns because people just have a lot more time. Um, what's also interesting to me, too, is also the rating. PG-13, which is, I say it's interesting, not because this hasn't happened before, but more to the fact that because of the subject matter, and how fantasy like this movie is, it feels like it shouldn't be PG-13, but it is. I, I think they could have gotten away with a PG. There is oh, yeah. some heavy subjects they talk about, but nothing too far that would really warrant a PG-13, I would say. 
And maybe once again, PG-13, they felt because there are some scary images and some intense moments they felt that would have been too far for younger viewers. But once again, I think it also comes to an optics thing where M. Night Shyamalan releasing a PG movie, especially after his previous oeuvre of work, I don't think would have made sense to a lot of people. And they were worried that probably would have hurt the box office as well. So I think there are some PG-13 elements, but overall, this is a PG film. Absolutely. Yeah, there's only like one or two things and we'll probably end up talking about that later that would I can see why they gave it the PG-13. But aside from those maybe couple of things, there's I don't really see much of a reason why this could be PG-13. It really easily could have been a PG. So getting into some ratings here, once again, kind of reflecting the box office returns, the are pretty not great. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes at a 25% critic score, 39% uh, audience score. Uh, Letterbox at a 2.3, IMDb at a 5.5, Metascore at a, 3, at a 36. Surprisingly, though, a little bit higher than I was expecting, Cinema Score at a B minus. Yeah, I guess none of these scores surprise me. Yeah, I was I was honestly expecting most very low scores, and regardless of what I think of the film, I could definitely see critics having a really big issue with it. And audiences, B minus still means they were very tepid on this film, even to the point of not really liking it that much. B minus is nowhere near a ringing endorsement. It's very much right. a blah. But when you consider audiences gave The Village a C, this is a step up. So audiences at the time did think this was just slightly better than The Village, which I think seems weird to me now because... When you compare the IMDb ratings, this film has a 5.5, whereas The Village has a 6.5, a very vast gap. Oh, yeah. And that's a whole point, which is pretty big. This is definitely below average, at least in IMDb, and way below uh, what you could be considered a good or fresh movie, per se, with almost everything else aside from, oh, even CinemaScore, too. The CinemaScore, I, I find it surprising more just because of how it's... Um, reflected with the other scores it's still low yes but it's also not as low as i was expecting considering the other scores that we have here um but yeah there's so far looking into it things aren't looking too hot going into lady in the water the money didn't the public perception seems to be pretty not great from almost every avenue the the box office returns are really low the ratings are really low and this is also one that I honestly haven't heard. I've heard probably the one of the least about outside of the village uh, from just hearing around the name M. Night Shyamalan. I haven't really heard this one around too often. So it's just it's weird going into a movie that is by a pretty renowned director that doesn't seem to be held in pretty in any kind of high regard. I was. Did you get who composed the film? I was going to check. Yeah. Uh, James Newton Howard. He did. I think he did all the other ones, too, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so James Newton Howard did come back to yeah. compose the film, which doesn't surprise me because, yeah, he has composed all of Shyamalan's previous films. I think the composition in this film is it, it has some I like the fantasy elements of the composition. Otherwise, I, I don't remember very much of it. Yeah, I actually went and listened to this soundtrack outside of the movie and it's it's oh, a good really? soundtrack, yeah. It's nothing too crazy, but James Newton Howard, I mean, he's a good composer anyways, so there's nothing short of good in this soundtrack either. Yeah, it's fine. I like it. It's not nothing I'd probably say, but it's still a good it's still a good composition. 
Well, listeners, if you haven't seen Lady in the Water and you don't want the film spoiled for you just as it wasn't for us, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film. Come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about all the juicy spoilers in Lady in the Water. Okay, um, well, hopefully I can explain things in that's that seems or comes out logical. Uh, Cleveland Heap is an owner slash maintenance man of an apartment complex in Philadelphia, as things usually tend to be. A new tenant is moving in, a film critic. As he's getting him settled in, there's talk of something in the neighbor in the apartment's pool. Yet Heap thinks that it's just another tenant sneaking in after hours. Come to find out, however, it's a it's actually a naiad-like creature called a nerf named Story who comes from the blue world. <laughs> she sneaks into Heap's room after being hunted by a scrunt that one night, uh, which is a grass-covered wolf-like creature. One of the residents' grandmother knows of the story of the blue world. As she's come to find out, it is a bedtime story she was told many years ago. However, getting the story out of her proves to be problematic. While in the apartment alone, Story finds and reads Heaps' journal, and it is revealed that Heaps' family was murdered and Heap was a doctor. She tells Heap that she is in search of an author whose book will be an inspiration for mankind and will better their future. Heap finds Vic Ran, played by M. Knight himself, as he is writing the book, a book called The Cookbook, which contains views and ideas that will one day inspire a future president. Unfortunately, however, Ran will also die also died to his book, not living long enough to see his sister's third child. It is then further revealed that once Story awakens this writer, an eagle will come and take her away. However, a scrunt will attempt to kill Story at, the sa- at that same time. In order to guarantee a safe departure, there are other people who live in the apartment complex who play very important roles. Through a game of charades in an all-knowing bedtime story resident, Heap is able to get answers from Story and that same resident through Rick Van's sister named Anna. In order for Story to leave safely, she needs a guardian, a symbolist, a guild, and a healer. Originally, it is believed that Heap is the guardian, the symbolist being a resident who does who works primarily on crossword puzzles, the guild being some pot smokers, and a healer being an older woman in yellow. However, this proves not to be the case upon further investigation. Come to find out the symbolist is actually the son of a crossword puzzle man. The guild is a combination of five sisters and two men. The guild or the guardian is not Heap, rather another another resident who only works out the uh, left half of his body, right half of his body, and the, leaving the healer position open for Heap. So in the end, the residents band together to protect Story as they travel out by the pool so the eagle can take her away. The scrunt is fought off by the half-exercised man, and the eagle comes down, like Story said, leaving Heap alone as the credits roll. I think I can say this plot is really over the top. Maybe that's not even the right word to use. It's kind of crazy. It's it's silly. I don't know. I don't want to start off with the negatives, but wow, little did I know by the time we got to the end of this movie... It was going to involve a giant eagle and uh, baboon stick monsters and grass dogs. I mean, okay, I'm really trying not to be negative. Let's talk about something positive first. But I just have to say, wow. I'm honestly, I'm with you. I had no idea what I was getting into when I first started this movie. (laughs) (laughs) When I first started this movie, I was thinking, oh, we're going to get a... We're going to get the Florida project, (laughs) but with fantasy elements, which kind of becomes fantasy in the last few minutes of that movie. Anyway, all I was saying was how I missed Willem Dafoe 
don't worry. I love Paul Giamatti, but I was like, dang, Willem Dafoe did this role better. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm agree. I agree with you. Uh, this I did get some uh, Florida Project vibes off of this. I there may have been some inspiration there uh, when it comes to the Florida Project. Um, who knows? But yeah, I also did get some vibes of that same movie when watching this. I'll say the first act is intriguing enough because it well it really has to be in order to pull me in right paul giamatti is clearly a very interesting character there is kind of a comedic element and of course like writing and dialogue between people and in circumstances is usually always very well done when it comes yep. to Shyamalan. and there is a deleted scene that's really has a really beautiful piece of dialogue where it says, like, once you find your voice, then your life uh, speaks grace or something. I can't can't hmm. quote it exactly. But nevertheless, I'm intrigued. I'm interested. But I guess we should say this film doesn't open at the apartment complex, the cove. It opens with these cave paintings kind of giving us a solidly saying this is going to be a mythical film. Right. Yeah. It, they don't waste too much time before they actually get into telling us that this is going to be pretty fantastical. This is very different from every other Shyamalan movie, mostly because it's dealing with more, I guess, fantasy in the realm of what you would normally see in like medieval times, more or less. It's, it's something along those lines of fantasy, not like before where it was like where with Unbreakable, it was like fantasy in the realm of superheroes but as if they were ordinary people um this is much different than that this is very much taking on um i guess more of the lord of the rings style cliche of fantasy yeah and it's not exactly lord of the rings in a total fantasy world because this yeah. is more so a fusion of reality with fantasy where right. everything is reality and little do we know there is this fantasy side to life that had been lost. And we understand that in the beginning because men used to live, have to live near bodies of water because we need water to survive. And there was these, mm -hmm. yeah, nymph-like creatures and they kind of lived in harmony, but then man wanted more land and out of greed. Um, yeah, that, so all of that ensued. And so I guess the big takeaway we're supposed to get is we have all of these uh, kind of weird, odd, or broken characters, and Story is here to kind of help them find their redemption and then ultimately change the world through M. Night Shyamalan's character, who is the writer. Yeah, and one of the things I also ended up liking is not necessarily that, not only just because that pretty much every character that we see in this movie has some kind of purpose. They have something to do with the overarching narrative in some fashion, usually. Um, I like that aspect too, along with the redemption story, but at the same time, there are, all, are also some pretty interesting characters that come out of this apartment complex. There's a like a scene, uh, more of a, like a montage actually, of uh, of Heap going around and talking to the different residents, doing, like, doing his day-to-day -day work, maintenance stuff. And he's getting to know, or not really getting to know, but like talking with these residents, trying to find somebody as, at this point who was a writer. And I liked... I like that aspect of us kind of going through essentially the building and getting to see all the different characters. You have the stoners who are up in that one apartment. You've got the writer downstairs. 
Uh, that's M. Night himself. You've got some, I think, some pretty interesting characters here um, in this apartment complex. I like these scenes when we kind of get to explore those characters a little bit. And, and I like that all of these characters are kind of these discarded ragamuffins that have been yeah. essentially brushed to the cove. They've been brushed out of society pretty much. And the entire story never leaves this cove. And of course, I like how the apartment, the setting is very much kind of shaped like a cove. It's kind of all encompassed within this area. Mm. And that in and of itself does help it feel even more like a fantasy uh, because there's this weird unknown grass and woods kind of located behind the cove. And everyone is very right. different and these characters are very colorful. I guess the one thing that did bother me towards the end, though, was so much confusion about who was the guardian and who was the healer and the guild. And yeah. I understand Shyamalan's probably wanting us to feel lost like them, thinking they felt like they knew their purpose, but they weren't unsure. But as a matter of fact, they had very different gifts to use instead. And I'll say this as well. There really is no, there's nothing I've, you know, the twist that happens in this movie. Like I think in every other Shyamalan movie that's happened up until this point, aside from the first two, um, there, him, not Shyamalan's known for, you know, his big, the twists at the very end that just change everything that you had initially thought about it. There's, no, that's not to say there aren't twists in this movie because we do find out later into the late into the movie that the guardian who has kind of been built up to, to for us to believe that it's Heap is not Heap. It's actually somebody else. Heap is actually the healer, which is fitting for the character who has such a tragic backstory. That's kind of one of the smaller uh, twists, but there is no not, not there is no the twist, the big twist in this movie anywhere, which I think is kind of interesting and I actually kind of like to be honest because. It's showing that M. Night is trying not to be, you know, trying not to fall into that mold of, well, he's the director that is always going to have the big twist. So he's trying something new here, not just not doing a twist, but also this story, this rather unique story that he's, tell that he's telling here. It's something very different from everything else that he's done, but done up until this point. And I think that's kind of interesting. And I know a lot of people kind of thought the twist fizzled out in the village. I'm not going to tell you what that is. You'll have to go watch the movie and listen to our review. But I think this, like these very minor twists, like you were talking about, are much truer to life. And they're not just this yeah. big cinematic twist just to have one. These are much more purposeful and meaningful. And they make a lot more sense because life doesn't always turn out the way we expect it. That's what we learn from uh, Mr. Heap, where we learn his family was murdered, but now he was a doctor, which okay that's a healer right there but our expectations are subverted through this uh like the guy who's the interpreter it's actually his son i i don't really understand he reads cereal boxes or something and that we'll talk about that <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless Shyamalan kind of subverts your expectations because he's grounding this movie in real life while fusing it with complete fantasy. And these people buy into the fantasy very easily and very quickly. Because, once again, this is essentially a realistic modern fairy tale. Yeah. And another thing, too, that I liked is I liked how, I guess, focused this movie is. And what I mean by focused, I mean, like, the scope of this movie is rather small because it's really only taking place 
uh, in this apartment complex. And I like that. And it, once again, this is part of the reason why I got a lot of vibes of the Florida Project, which does kind of the same thing. Um, th- we don't really go outside of the campus on of this apartment complex. So we keep things pretty grounded and pretty focused for the most part. And I like that. I like that we are kind of keeping things as pretty simple as possible when it comes to location and uh, I guess what its goals are for creating thematic depth. Unfortunately, when we'll kind of get into this a bit more later, uh, the story is interesting, <laughs> uh, but I don't want to get too negative right now. That's one thing I find interesting. One thing I ended up liking is, I guess, more or less the simplicity of the setting is one thing I liked. That ended up liking more than I was actually thinking that I would, given the story that we do have here, given the lore and everything that comes with this movie. Yeah, I did also like as well that faith is rewarded in the end of this film. It's basically saying keep having faith because just because it's not going the way you expect it to go doesn't mean it's not going to turn out in the end. And then on the flip side of that, the story is also saying that cynicism is uh, rewarded equally in kind. If you're have a very just kind of a bleak outlook on life and don't really have any faith in anything and everything is horrible, then just like the critic in this movie uh, who thinks he knows everything, then he is basically predicting his own end. Of course, he thinks he's going to get away because he has faith only in himself and not in a more transcendental higher purpose. Another thing too, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier. The music I think is good. There, this is another thing I like of it. The music and cinematography I think are both good in this movie. James Ewan Howard once again does a fine job at composing, like he has pretty much every other time, and and with at least when he's worked with M Night Shyamalan. I agree, and this does have all of the makings of a perfect mid two thousands family fantasy movie that kind of like Tim Burton's uh, Big Fish was a complete blend of fusion with reality. This probably could have hit that highs. I know a lot of people love that movie. I have some Mm -hmm. issues with some of the worldviews that's spoken in it. This is kind of just like that. I feel like Shyamalan's really trying to go for some of that, but I, I think he misses the mark. And where I think he misses it is probably within act two. Um, I get really, uh, lost and confused on the exact purpose of uh, I know for a movie that's about everyone having a purpose it's kind of funny because I guess story's purpose becomes ill-defined and it becomes too muddled trying to juggle it between so many different characters and I can't help but think that whole shower scene where she's sitting in the shower for so dang long and like tugging her ears and patting her arms. Yeah. I'm like, Shyamalan, you're really asking way too much of us now to maintain investment in this and not just find it to be hokey. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think the weakest point of this movie is honestly mostly in its storytelling. There's a few more other things that I have issues with, but mostly with how it presents its story, I think is one of its weakest links because not only is it kind of weakly told in the second act where we don't, where story's purpose, like you said, is kind of not redefined very well. But at the same time, I think I also take issue with the fact that this fusion of reality and fantasy is not really well done. It's kind of a stretch 
for this movie to try and tell the story and give lore to these narfs who are especially this one narf who's supposed to become uh, also a leader in herself who doesn't know it yet and that she's supposed to ride away on an eagle after she awakens this writer and all this stuff it's there's not the the lore is not baked into the story very well it's kind of detached from reality which i know that's supposed to be but at the same time it loses me because i'm i would like to get into the story I would like to understand how the, the, what the lore actually is, but because of the way that it's told to me, I don't really care, mostly because I don't really care to understand it. Yeah, once the second act hit and Story has to sit in the shower and I'm already not buying these grass dogs that look like they came out of the Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> Um, that did take me out of the film as well. And then of course, when story sitting in the shower and I do like, he's trying to go around and find all of these people, but I, I get lost. I honestly don't really understand where exactly we're all trying to go with this. I guess they're trying to build this clan of people that know what to do and to help story fulfill her purpose, get back to her people. And then in the end, they'll figure it out for themselves. You're right. I just don't care to really invest and figure it out. I really wanted to check out during this portion of the film. Right. And I, I think that this, the fantasy elements could, given the right context and the right script, I think they could do, they could add a lot to this movie. Uh, once again, unfortunately, I think M. Night just missed the mark when it comes to making this story believable. It's this little thing called suspension of disbelief. I never really felt that there was much here that I could, once again, kind of has the definition of the word, the phrase goes, suspend my disbelief that this movie is in some way real. I never really got this sense outside of reality and into the fantasy that any of this was real and or that any of it was even particularly that interesting. There's a lot there. There's a lot of detail. The problem is, once again, how it's told comes off as meh. So I don't really care. It's, there's no mesh with the re with reality that makes it interesting to me. This does feel like a big step back in storytelling for Shyamalan, where he has consistently written convincing characters in an intriguing setting, and then somehow he's always subverted our expectations, which makes us even further invested in how is this situation going to be resolved and how are these characters going to find some kind of purpose or redemption. Mm -hmm. This this seems like I would have understood this film in his work a lot better if it would have came out after Wide Awake. Like this would have been his first foray into real cinema and uh, like real storytelling as far as he wants to go. Uh, this does seem like a step back and I'm really disappointed with that. And not to mention a lot of this feels pretentious. Oh yeah. And so far... Yeah, and pretentious insofar as Shyamalan is just expecting us to really eat this up, really buy into it, really invest and believe in it. And I'm sorry, I'm not at all. I just I find a lot of this to be really hokey and it doesn't it doesn't get any better. Oh, yeah. No, in my mind, and maybe you agree with me on this, it just kind of seems to get worse as the movie goes along. The more it introduces lore, the more it tries to also tries to build a thematic depth. It doesn't really do a great job. And once again, that's because the script, I don't think is that really good of a script. 
you hit the nail on the head when you say that this movie is kind of pretentious. Uh, and I would have to agree with you on that. Mostly, and I think mostly this criticism stems from the fact that M. Not Shyamalan is a character in the, in his own movie where he is the writer <laughs> that's meant to be the one who changes the world when after he's died because of some work that he did that inspired a man to be to take his reading or take his writing and then work off of that. That's somewhat pretentious in my mind, uh, giving a character, giving your character that you have been that you've taken the role of to do, or at least to be that to be that person. I feel like that's that's pushing it a bit. Oh yeah, that did bother me that Shyamalan put himself so much into the film, and he is basically this great truth teller that will write the cookbook, and mm -hmm. he's worried that. He's going to, his book is going to be like so controversial and powerful that it will cause his death. Did you get that? And she said, your sister's going to have seven kids. You will live to see two of them. Yeah. So we just, all we know is that she's going to uh, awaken this writer who will change the face of humanity sometime in the future. Then we find out that he is that writer and not as that writer, but that he is also going to die doing his work after he writes the book. Um, his sister will have two kids and then he'll die. And he'll die because of what he wrote. But his writing will live on and become a legacy for some future generation to take his writing and then live off of that and make humanity better. Maybe like, I okay. could have bought this a little more if the story itself would have been framed within the context of his writing in a post-story world where mm -hmm. Shyamalan, well, the character Shyamalan had written the story and we could have maybe seen the impact or it was contained within it. Right. I don't know. I We never get any of his writing, I don't think. And neither do we really have much of a sense of how these characters will move on. And even characters that are really brought into their own within the third act don't, I don't even really understand why they're there. Um, right. The guy that sits in his chair in his home and just kind of uh, makes those funny comments. I thought he was funny, but I don't. He's just like, I just want to be a kid again. I don't really right. understand what he's saying with that. Um, the one other thing that I did want to mention first before I get really negative is um, the critic, the film critic. He is an interesting character because he is kind of this very self-referential character where he has this basis in reality, but his uh, kind of hatred of the fantastical is his downfall because that is exactly what comes back to bite him. But at the same time, I'm kind of confused because Shyamalan through writing through the critic seems to know better than to do some of the things like the critic would criticize. Yep. But then Shyamalan does those things. Like when the critic is like, Oh, I hated the film. The characters just spoke their emotions instead of really showing them. And the climax ended in the rain, which is very akin to how this film ends with the climax in the rain. And um, I don't know. I, I got to admit that part really confused me how Shyamalan seemed to know what he was being self-referential about, but he didn't seem to mind it or, or think. I don't know. What do you think, Alan? I don't know. I'm with you on that one. I, it seems like he's just taking... I guess what criticisms typically come out, the cliche criticisms, I guess you could say. Um, but once again, unfortunately, kind of like what you were just saying, the movie also acts on that for some reason. Um, instead of taking what 
I guess is considered a cliche in the critic's eyes and then, you know, changing it, uh, like speaking how you feel, the dialogue not really, not really written very well. I wouldn't even say that this movie itself is really written that makes it anything, I guess, subtle. Um, and then also ending in the rain, of course, we have that as well or something along like it. It's, yeah, it's weird that a movie, honestly, this critic character, I understand thematically what his purpose is. Like you said in, in the opening or the beginning, his more or less his purpose is to not have such an outflick on life where it's so negative all the time. I think I take issue with the fact that he's even in here in the first place. And it sounds like uh, M. Night is just kind of going after the critics uh, and their thoughts on film as well as also trying to work that in and trying to find some kind of, I guess, message out of that. It seems a bit dangerous to do something like that. Um, and maybe that's why this, at least part of the reason why this movie got slammed uh, when it comes to critic and their reviews. I want to know what you thought of Paul Giamatti's acting in this film. There are times when I think he does a good job. Um, I like his, I guess, reaction when Story finds his journal. Um, I think he does a good job there. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are other times, and this might be when he's trying to, when he's trying to be comedic, where I don't think it works very well. I don't think the stutter is there, and there are times where I think it works, and there are times it doesn't. I think all around, he's Paul G. Mine is a good actor, but I think his role in this movie. I can see the character that they're trying to build out of him, but I don't think that he does necessarily the best job in this movie. Do we ever know why he has a stutter? Are we to assume that is a trauma-based reaction from the murder of his family? So this isn't really explained. Um, I think it's just to help us as the audience to understand um, that story is rather magical. Um, because when this is noted in the movie too, when she's around, he doesn't have that stutter. So I think that's more or less, it's just kind of helping the audience understand that when he has the stutter, then story isn't around. But when, when story is there and he has no stutter, that means she's magical. I think it's just one of those things where it just helps the audience understand, I guess what helps, uh, what, or what is going to end up helping this character become, uh, what he, what he should, I guess, strive for in life. There could be some psychological thing that the repression of his past memories have kind of led him to have a have the stutter, but I don't, if I remember right, that really isn't ever explained. I, yeah, I couldn't help but notice that as well. When ever anyone is around story, then whatever kind of ailment they have or issue they have just seems to fade away. Yeah. So, and also in that sense, story seems to be this almost messianic figure of sorts, which I'm sure... Shyamalan was going for and we know Shyamalan is no stranger to writing about Christianity but also like Hinduism or pantheism so this movie seems to definitely kind of play along those lines of kind of pulling some familiar elements from Christianity but ultimately kind of taking this route of the universe will guide us and uh, we're all connected and there's these great uh, spiritual creatures that we have to do battle with so there's this higher spiritual realm to the world as well. Now, as for Giamatti's acting, I think he does okay with the stuttering, but 
in general, he always plays this incredibly downtrodden, somber, just exasperated character, which ultimately got on my nerves. I understand he is a man beaten down by life through horrible circumstances, but he just gives the exact same line delivery, it feels like, with everything where he's just has this really breathy, almost gasping way of speaking that that did bother me. And I think the rest of the acting is really nothing to write home about. Bryce Dallas Howard does a fine job. I don't know, probably the best part of this movie. She portrays this very otherworldly, alluring figure that is very mysterious. Otherwise, everybody is just every everything about this movie, I think, is just fairly mediocre. No, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Um, I think uh, Anna M. Knight's sister doesn't do a very good job at acting. No. Um, <laughs> there's a scene, and this really killed me almost, uh, when Paul Giamatti is supposed to convince the grandmother of, I think her name is Young Soon, yep. um, trying to, supposed to convince her grandmother that he's a child. That was ridiculous. Um, there are moments in this movie where I think the acting isn't really, isn't really all that good. There are times where it's fine, not that big of a deal. I think Paul Giamatti all the way around does a fine job, but nothing spectacular. But for the most part, the acting is, it's okay. There, But there are moments where it's just, it's not good. The other thing that I'll say that's really not good about this film is the CGI, especially towards the beginning. Yeah. Where's the end? It's a little better. Um, I could tell they spent a lot on that eagle probably, which they don't show very much of. And they probably put more mm -hmm. into the dog at the end and the beginning. I couldn't even believe how bad everything looked with the dog. And the dog is always in this like tall grass that they just constantly water. They're like constantly watering this grass and they never mow it. I, I don't even understand that. So I do understand that the CGI is from 2006. I think it's fine for the time, but by today's standards, it did take me out of the movie. And then by the time I am at the very end of the film, I am really thinking this movie has to be seen to believed. I don't think I could just go explain it to, to someone who had never seen it and they could actually buy this is what the movie is about, especially when those crazy uh wood chimps jump down and beat the dog grass dog up and drag him away i'm like what is this and the great eel ton which is also a giant eagle does come down and, and just take her away i don't know no i i'm with you uh if i were to try to explain this to somebody that they probably look at me like i'm a crazy person <laughs> It's probably yeah, and I understand it's it stems off of uh, a bedtime story he told his kids. I understand that it's just trying to mesh it with a movie that's also branching from reality. It's hard to do that, and I don't think it does it very well, as I mentioned earlier. And I was with this movie to some degree up until oh, let's see. Well, okay, the scene when Paul Giamatti uh, tries to act like a child that. That hurt, but I was able to stick with it up until the point. I, it was hard, but I I stuck with it up until the point when um, the crossword puzzle character turns out he is not the symbolist that they thought he was. Is actually his son, who, as I we kind of mentioned this earlier, he reads from cereal boxes. And when I saw that shot of him looking at the cabinet, and then it cuts again to a complete one eighty 
of him facing the cabinet full of cereal boxes, I just about lost my mind. Because I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, this movie's already crazy enough. Now they're adding a kid who could read from cereal boxes, and he's like some kind of magical scribe. It's like ridiculous. And I understand, <laughs> this movie's ridiculous already, but seeing that just about broke me. Because there's no lead into the craziness that is this movie. I have mentioned this is one of my main criticisms. The movie doesn't really do a good job at meshing and taking the story and the lore of the fantasy parts and getting that into the story in a way that makes it believable. That plus, I think this film probably needs a bit more connective tissue Mm -hmm. in order to instead it just really throws us into scenes or just jumps to the next scene without much explanation as to why they would pick such a person or go and do to such a place. It's just, oh, yeah, of course, this is the logical outcome of our just musings and meanderings here. Of course, we're just going to go contact my son who can read cereal boxes. And that that felt so pretentious to me. I was so frustrated with that because they're saying we need someone who can look at the ordinary and find the extraordinary. Right. And they just stand in front of this big old cabinet of cereal boxes and everybody is just like, this whole apartment complex just follows them out around everywhere. And I thought, this is a joke. This is such a joke. I'm like, Everybody making this movie, like Paul Giamatti, like a lot of these people are well-known, famous actors, Mm -hmm. and they're just wholeheartedly giving it their best, buying into it, taking it all so seriously. And I just couldn't believe it. That scene was ridiculous. And the other scene that I, I guess I missed the connective tissue, and I know why, because it's one of the deleted scenes, is because when Paul Giamatti like jumps into the pool and Mm -hmm. he finds like all this like gate and hieroglyphs in the in the pool and he's like knocking over pots and he's like finding a key i'm like what did i just miss what is going on i mean did did you follow that scene alan did you follow the a to b to c that just came out of nowhere for me so i caught it because they say that I, i i forget how or why he went down there but i know that they needed something that would heal uh Bryce Dallas Howard's character story because she got hurt by a scarf or a scrunch, my bad. Um, and so he had to go find that key. How he got down there or how he knew to go down there, I forget. I really don't care, to be honest. But my main concern was when he was down there, uh, are you sure he can hold his breath for that long? Was my main concern. <laughs> I thought that too. I thought yeah. that was amazing how he's just like oh, no yeah. sweat holding his breath for like three, four minutes. Yep. And he's lucky that she happened to hold glasses with with air in them down at the bottom and hold them down with rocks. Oh, how lucky he is. And also the fact that there is some kind of straw mechanism down there. It's it's weird. It's weird. I guess what I'm trying to get out of this is. I understand it's trying to be a fantasy, but then I'm thinking, wait, why is this all at the bottom of their pool all of a sudden? And too many contrivances that we're just supposed to just accept that I just can't follow it. It doesn't make much sense why this would be the case. So nevertheless, I was clock watching there towards the end because I'm like, come on, this is going on forever. And they're introduced, they're bringing in all these characters and they got the five sisters walking around with rolling pins and brooms in the rain. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, I'm just thinking like, what would an outsider's perspective be? I'm like, this would look like they're shooting some 
joke of a movie, honestly. It it feels like adults playing pretend, honestly. that's That seems to be what I'm getting out of this movie, is adults playing pretend uh, for a good chunk of it. Yeah, this movie absolutely feels like adults playing pretend, and that's why uh, it really took me out of the movie, and I just thought, Shyamalan, you are asking way too much of us to be invested and take it seriously watching a group of grown women run around with rolling pins and brooms and then the man with a giant arm on his left arm and uh, half of his body's huge and then he grabs a broom and he has no problem backing this thing away and then and then the monkeys come out of the tree it's it's really too much i was really disappointed so Let's just go ahead and give our final thoughts. I'm curious to okay. see your score, Alan. So, Alan, what is your recommendation for Lady in the Water? I'll applaud M. Night for a couple of things. One of them being trying to tell a unique story. I do think that despite my numerous criticisms, I do think that this is a unique story. Unique may not be the best way to describe it, but it is, in my mind, unique. It's got some interesting stuff into it. It's got some interesting ideas. However, how it tells that story, I think, is where the movie begins to fall apart. Mostly in the fact that it doesn't mesh well um, its fantasy and reality. And that comes at the cost uh, at enjoyment of the movie. Also, this movie is, can be very pretentious at times. Having M. Night Shyamalan be the main character who's supposed to change the world is kind of pretentious. Um, having a lot of these fantasy elements being put into this movie and, uh, and act as if it's some almost prophecy-like uh, message is kind of pretentious. There are things I like in it. Like, there's good music. I want to like this movie more than what actually, what I actually, how I actually do like it. Unfortunately... This movie, especially there towards the end, becomes so ridiculous, it's hard for me to really give it any kind of recommendation. Uh, the one, the, the, the scene that just broke me was, the, and I mentioned this earlier, was the scene with the kid reading the cereal boxes. So, in the end, um, no, this is not a very good film, unfortunately. I was kind of hoping it would turn around at the beginning, there towards the end, but unfortunately it didn't, and it continued to get worse, so... Not a film I think I'll be returning to. Um, soundtrack, maybe, but film, no. Uh, my score, 3 out of 10, not recommend. Ouch, 3 out of 10. Well, Lady in the Water has a great title and, I would say, a gripping trailer. Unfortunately, the story is a hokey, real-world fairy tale that struggles to overcome its silliness in order to say its true message, that of redemption and finding your purpose. I like these ragtag rejects realize they have an overarching purpose to life, just as God created everyone to have. This positive outcome shines through in the last 20 minutes, and the first act does intrigue me. The second act loses itself in diving too far into the self-referential myth instead of maintaining a gripping through line for me to follow with. Instead, I become just as lost as the characters, but not in a good way. Without much suspense or understanding of their goal, I struggle to stay invested. I'm disappointed that Shyamalan asked us to reach too far to believe this real-world fairy tale. Lady in the Water receives four stars out of ten with a solid not recommend. Oof. I gotta say, I don't have too much faith in next week, uh, Alan. 
according to what you and other people have said, next week we are reviewing The Happening. Ah, uh, yes. But uh, I, it's kind of hard for me to hide my enjoyment for what we're about to see. And that say. is what I will say as well is I think I'm going to like this film for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> you might. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is we did kind of note that the village was, I guess, more or less the downfall or the beginning of the end, more or less, uh, with M. Night Shyamalan. That one was a movie that, from what I remember, we both thought was OK, but nothing we thought was spectacular compared to everything else that's or at least the last three movies in that point. Lady in the Water, in my mind, further uh, further enforces that idea that this is now the downward spiral. Clearly, this is the downward spiral that we all kind of have come to know M. Night for, for starting off great and then spiraling down to The Last Airbender and The Happening being the two, I think, that are probably known as the Shyamalan that is not good Shyamalan. Yeah, I would say for me, this is the beginning of the end until he has a new beginning which we will get to later on where he kind of has a comeback but uh, go back and listen to our review of the village i do still think it's a good film but nevertheless it does have some issues but compared to this the village is a far better film oh absolutely say, than lady absolutely. in the water but listeners, we do want to know what you think of Lady in the Water. Is this one of Shyamalan's underrated films, especially coming back to it now after all these years? It's been 13 years since this film debuted in theaters. And I'm intrigued to see if some of our listeners really do enjoy this one or if you don't like it just as much as we did. Or maybe there's some elements to the film that you'll point out to us and may make us reevaluate some of the some of our stances. I'm really curious to know what you have to say about it, listeners. So join the discussion. Go ahead and tweet at us. Post it on the comment section on our Facebook page. If you're on Podbean, there's a comment section. The website, there's a comment section. So there's plenty of places for you to comment. And of course, if you are listening on YouTube, don't forget to like this video and share it with your friends. But Alan, thank you for joining me with Lady in the Water, even though it really didn't live up to either of our expectations. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with The Happening. Hey, listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube Facebook and Twitter page, and of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. 
Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. I will never understand. I will never understand what makes Google Hangouts do what it does. This piece of junk. I think we need to find something new. I can't even see uh, you. I, I can just see you. myself. No, it's just me. There you are. <laughs> Gosh. I can't, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you not hear me? What? I can hear you just fine. <laughs> No, I can't. I can't hear you. <laughs> Can you hear me now? I don't understand. Are we actually gonna finish this podcast now? <laughs> Can you hear me at all? Hello. 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 So, so what's the problem? I don't know. I could hear you and see you just fine. Uh, all right. Well, whatever. I will never understand. All right. Google Hangouts is done. It's done. I, maybe we should use Skype. We're, sw we're switching to something better. I don't care Please. if it's Skype or FaceTime or just a call or something. I don't know. All right, I say we look into Skype and see where that gets us. Okay. Uh, I would never understand why Google Hangouts does what it does. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so when we last talked, uh, when, when Google Hangouts was working properly, I said, um, I said that a good chunk of this movie is really feels like uh adults kind of playing pretend oh yeah that's what i said that's what i said 